Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Don't Quit Your Day Job. My name is Paul. I am your host, as always. Thanks very much for listening. And today, I have the incomparable Jennifer Batten on the show. Jennifer, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Right, right on. We're going to start with the question that I think everybody is wondering, uh, because you live in Portland, Oregon. Is Portlandia accurate? Is that really how it is to live in Portland, Oregon? (laughs) It it is a different kind of place. And one of my favorite quotes from the show is, is Portlandia, where young people go to retire. (laughs) (laughs) there is a a pretty substantial hippie population and and i love it you know i was in la for 20 years and i bought books on four different cities i wanted to get the hell out and be in a smaller community um at one point i realized you know i spend my life on a plane so it doesn't matter where i live right and it was a serious upgrade even the air you know, I, I was used to surly people at LAX, like, eh, what do you want? Get in the back of the line. Blah. And all of a sudden I see these smiling faces at the post office or the airport. And I go, wow, <laughs> thank you. I'll take it. So so you just got tired of L.A. That's that's why you left and, and you wanted a, a sort of a better lifestyle, I guess, is is the way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I'm thankful for the time I spent there. I was there for 20 years. And I look back and go, that was 19 too many. <laughs> um, you know, the traffic is so bad. It's, it's, it's almost like I stopped participating in the city because all my gigs, like 99% of my gigs were in other countries. So I would just leave. And even going to see friends was such a pain in the ass, the traffic and the parking and all that nonsense. So, you know, unless you're an actor, there's a lot of occupations where you don't really need to be there anymore. Right, right. So I interview a guitar player who lives in L.A. His name is Mark Tremelgia. I, I went to high school with him. You know, he's an L.A. lifelong musician um, and, and he loves it there. And he, you know, he gigs and he does all of that stuff. But I guess that's the trade off, right, is sort of that quality of life thing. Um, if you if you have to drive a lot of places, you know, not, not being from L.A., I live in Pittsburgh, the traffic. So P- Pittsburgh people claim traffic is bad in Pittsburgh, but that's because they've never been anywhere else. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's like that in small towns, too. I mean, you could get one from I'm, I'm outside of Portland, actually. You could get one one side of my town to the other in less than 10 minutes. And I find myself going, oh, well, this coffee shop is two minutes closer. I can't be bothered to go all the way to the end of town (laughs) after being stuck in traffic in L.A. for probably a year of my life. Right. Right. A year that that you'll you'll never get back. Um, So cool. And so in terms of what you're doing now, before we get into some of the historical stuff, again, famously, you've played with Michael Jackson, you played with Jeff Beck. Um, but right now, what I'm interested in talking about is what you're doing and what you're able to do from, from Oregon. So for example, the Guitar Cloud Symposium and the clinics that you're running, you're able to run all of that directly from your home in, in Oregon and everything is cool? Yeah. Uh, uh, boy, it's really evolved. We we launched last August, and it was obviously a way to make money during a pandemic because right. every musician suffered from not being able to work. And I, I called up Gretchen Mann and Neely Brosh. I had toured with them and Vicky Genfan, and you know it wasn't meant to be a girl thing. It's just these are 
people that uh, I knew could get the job done, right? right, and, right. and everybody was into it. So we launched this ridiculous thing where the, the it's morphed over time. And every time we do another one, it's, you know, we do surveys and listen to people what like, what they like, what they didn't like, and just make changes. In the very beginning, I wanted it to be modeled after TED Talks. And okay. you watch TED Talks and they are under 20 minutes and you get these rocket scientists distilling everything they know right. <laughs> into a 20 minute segment that is gripping. I mean, there, there's a lot of wonderful speakers there. Um, they keep coming back for more. So I said, OK, each of us, we're going to do six subjects each. So over the weekend, people get 24 different subjects of music, whether it's this one's on tapping, this is on chromatics, this is on learning science or different apps. And damn, we put a lot of work into that. <laughs> I mean, and then, you know, once you start studying it and putting the course together, you realize that it, still a year later, the night before the show, I'm editing things out because there's just not enough time to get it all in. Right. So, yeah, the Guitar Cloud Symposium, we've done it um, every month except last October. We've had uh, special guests, Steve Vai and Steve Lukather, um, Dweezil Zappa, Robin Ford was the last one, Andy Timmons. And it's I, I just remember when I was at Musicians Institute, back when it was just a guitar school, we would have these clinics once a month from people that we never ever get to hang with normally right we could right. go to their shows we had pat Matheny, Lee rittenauer larry carlton but just to have that private time with them to ask about their careers and you know i've been around the block but having time with them in that setting i learned a hell of a lot it's very very enlightening and inspiring so that that was every other month it was a big deal a lot of sponsor giveaways and special guests and two two days jam-packed with content. Then every other month I would do a single deep dive where instead of shorter segments, each teacher would do an hour okay. and then have half hour Q and a time with people. So it's, it's interesting how it's, how it's unfolding and it will change yet again this fall. Right. And so are you trying to make this like your new main thing, or is it just one of the things that you're doing to, to maintain a steady stream of income? You know, uh, I have high hopes that one day it will be the main thing. Um, yeah, yeah, it takes it takes a while to get right. a new business started, to right. get the word out. Right. And there's a hell of a lot of competition for guitar education out there. Um, and, and it's almost like you got to re-educate people as to what this is, because I'm not aware of any anything else out there that's live and interactive like so it, I, I liken it to uh, Thomas Blug's Amp One, right? It, revolutionary amp design, and people go, "Well, that's kind of an expensive pedal." And you go, "No, it's <laughs> it's a hundred watt head that you can put in your carry-on, right? You know, four channel analog MIDI switchable." And then still, after you tell them that, they go, "So, do you need a power amp with it?" No, <laughs> I mean it takes a lot of money and a lot of time right. to get the word out as right. to what it is, and then. Long term, if if that's what people want, it remains to be uh, figured out. Right. So so what would you say for someone like me? I played guitar for a long time. I certainly remember you back in the guitar for the practicing 
practicing musician days, oh. you know, seeing your name and, and having those comps where, where you put songs on and all of that stuff. So I've been playing for a long time, but mostly I'm a punk rock guy. So my skill set is my skill set. Right. Um, and I'm I'm quite happy with it. I gig and do all of that. But but a guy like me who might be intimidated going to Guitar Cloud Symposium because of the skill level is just sort of, you know, a, a, what I would term maybe a big jump. Um, so what would you say about someone like me in, in terms of participating in something like that? Well, it, it's interesting that you bring that up, because even for myself, I think going to a Vi camp, you know, I've been playing since I was eight years old and. I've been around the block, played with Jeff Beck, Michael Jackson. I would feel intimidated going to a Steve Vai camp. <laughs> and the beauty of having it on Zoom is we don't hear you. You know, you take it at your level. Right. Okay. And there's plenty of PDFs and videos and stuff to download to to support uh, what we have taught afterwards. Um, so it's, you know, it's definitely not for beginners. We did do a beginner course and we put a ridiculous amount of information to an afternoon and you know we all thought this is a great idea because Sweetwater alone sold a thousand guitars every day of the pandemic yeah yeah every single day so we go obviously there's a lot of beginners out there that could use some guidance and then about a week before we launched I go oh Jesus you know so they complete this and then there is a couple rungs of the ladder to get through before you can understand the rest of this stuff but as time goes And as we get feedback, I think um, all of the teachers so far have really broken things down into bite-sized chunks. And it's not like you're going to absorb everything over the weekend and you might not have interest in every single technique over the weekend. But the idea is to inspire and to advance and just, and that's a fun thing for the instructors too, because we check each other's classes uh, like Prashant Aswani did thing on hybrid picking. And I thought I had hybrid picking down. He's got a whole other thing going on, you know, so it's advancing my thing. And it's, it's just like this domino effect of inspiration. Cool. And, and I'm, I'm reaching out to get a lot of different people, even if they teach the same course, there's different perspectives. And indeed, when, when we first started with, with Neely and Gretchen and Vicky, I said, let's start with a list of 10 things that we're passionate about teaching. And then we'll pare it down from there. And everybody had tapping, you know, and a couple of them backed off and Neely and I still wanted to do tapping. And even though we both did a 20 minute segment on tapping, it was completely different approaches. Okay. okay. So I, I think that's really valuable as opposed to always going to one teacher that says, this is the way to do it. And this is my right. approach. And right. so you never get the other side of it. Is, is So just speaking of tapping, a little aside here, is that, do you feel like that's the thing you're most known for in terms of guitar playing? Yeah, probably. Well, most known would be for my hair with Michael Jackson. You know, <laughs> if you're talking about numbers of people right. with memories of me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of on the ground floor of that, right. you know, in the, in the late 70s um, when Van Halen hit and Randy Rhodes was doing it, uh, a fellow classmate of mine. Well, I was talking about the seminars that we got. Emmett Chapman was one of the people that came in uh, to give a seminar when I was at GIT and he plays the stick and 59 of us, 60 students were looking at him going, dude, we're just trying to get the guitar down. (laughs) You know, (laughs) now you got 10 strings with a different tuning ain't going to happen. 
But it planted a seed in Steve Lynch's mind, who ended right. up in a band called Autograph for the big yeah. hit yeah. in the 80s called Turn Up the Radio. And he started experimenting completely separate Van Halen about what if I use the right hand to tap? And he came up with a, an approach that was really, really intriguing to me. And during the school year, it was just too much to keep up with the curriculum to add anything extracurricular. But as soon as we graduated, I was like, beeline to Steve. You got to teach me that. So that was the beginning of that in, well, 79. Cool. Then you, you mentioned Michael Jackson. So let's spend a little bit of time there. I don't want to spend a ton of time on your website. And, and I'll drop all the links for Guitar Cloud Symposium, your website and all of that. I'll drop it all in the podcast. But on your website, you have a FAQ and you talk about Michael Jackson a lot. So I'll invite uh, anyone listening to go there and, and check it out. But just a, just a couple of questions. So you mentioned the audition. The audition was in 87 with with 100 other guitar players. Michael wasn't there. You just sort of did your thing. How did you decide what you were going to play for such a high pressure sort of environment? <laughs> you know, it in the end, it wasn't as high pressure as it could have been. So everybody was scheduled. So there wasn't anybody else in the room okay. checking me out. Yeah. There was um, the, the person I had talked to that scheduled it. Uh, I, I said, well, what song should I know? And he, you know, he listed Billie Jean or, you know, some of the hits. And so I, I took two days off of whatever else I was doing to woodshed those songs. And when I went in, there was no band. And so we didn't play those songs. <laughs> Um, it was just the only guidance I was given was to play some funk rhythm. And he was videoing everything so Michael w could see them later, which I mean, if Michael was in the room, I would have been crapping myself. But so it was very relaxed. It was just three people in the room. That was it. Um, and then it was up to me after that. And thankfully, because of Van Halen and Eruption and Cathedral and all those solo pieces had every band in Hollywood had a moment for the guitar player and I was in five bands. So I had a lot of experience playing on my own. So I just started, um, you know, I did the funky rhythm thing cause I knew that would be needed right. in a two and a half hour show, six, the beat it solo last 16 bars. So you gotta have some other chops available. So I, I had been teaching some funky stuff at GIT. I was teaching there at the time. So I whipped out some of and then I just started improving, And I had also done a three-song demo to try to get a record deal. And Michael Sambello, the guy that wrote Maniac, was the producer. Um, and, and one of the songs I recorded was Giant Steps. And that was a worked out tapping piece. So I played that, um, improv some wacky soloing, rock, kind of rock style soloing. And then I ended with the Beat It solo because I had been playing that in a cover band for... 80s, probably, what did it come out in 84, something like that? So I've been playing that for three years, and I thought he might find that useful, and that's probably what sealed the right. deal. Right. Cool. Um, was So you famously played the, the Super Bowl. Uh, I have my notes here, but I don't remember which year it was, but it was uh, the Super Bowl halftime. So arguably, yeah. is that the... Uh, most nerve-wracking uh, experience that any single person could ever have? <laughs> I think for Michael, yes. Uh, it's the only time in 10 years I ever felt like he was nervous. Really? He wow. was kind of scattered. Yeah. I mean, the pressure is enormous. Right. You know, there's no retakes. It's live. It's going to be there forever. 
um, that was before the internet. And now it's seriously there forever. Anybody can yeah. look it up at any time. And every single year when the Super Bowl rolls around, people go, hey, this was you back then. I go, yeah, I kind of know. <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> um, but actually, honestly, for me, it was just fun. It was just one of a kind thing. It was so different from what we did on tour. Uh, I, I have this memory of the day before doing a rehearsal where <clears throat> the stage was probably in five or six different parts on wheels. And obviously it can't be on the field when they're playing football. And right. my memory is it was like a track meet where there's a gun that goes off, which, you know, memories do funny things over time. So maybe somebody just said go. <laughs> and as soon as that happened, everybody hauled ass with their pieces of the stage and just ran to the center of the field, attached the pieces together and ran off. And we went on and did our thing. And another thing I remember about that is when we first started playing, the echo from an empty stadium was so bad that dancers couldn't even dance. Oh, okay. It was just, you know, oh my God, that was frightening. But you know, thankfully the sound guys were pros and knew that would happen. So they put a delay on it so we would hear it properly. And, and I was not told half of what was gonna happen. I only, we were compartmentalized. <laughs> I knew my thing, I knew what to play and when and the staging, but I didn't know the intro. In fact, if you look at the film, you can see me in the background going like this in the beginning because there was an impersonator <laughs> that popped out of the scoreboard in a, a bunch of smoke and bam, there he was. So I'm looking at that. And then the other side of the field, another impersonator pops out and go, what the hell? <laughs> and at the end, they had all these kids come out with cards that made a picture. I didn't know that was going to happen either. <laughs> so it was just a, it was just really fun because it was a one of a kind thing. Right. I knew it was going to be a big deal on TV. I didn't know it was going to go out to 80 nations and a billion and a half people, which is probably good. I only knew that after the fact. Right. And so then you go back to normal Michael Jackson world tours. And so was that a letdown now that you're just doing regular gigantic stadium shows? <laughs> no, it, it was, um, uh, I would say almost always fun. And I, I don't know why I would even qualify that. Maybe I was not having a good day time to time right. <laughs> over 10 years. Right. That happens. You right. know, but it, it, it was a, I, I was a Jackson fan for starters and Plus, all the people in the band were good people. Okay. Yeah. I mean, nothing can ruin a tour faster than having one of the musicians be a total dick, you right. know? And it's like, right. ah, here we are with that guy on stage again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So cool. Then uh, let's briefly sojourn into uh, Jeff Beck. Um, so I read, I read on your webpage that you just wanted to meet him. So you met him and then suddenly you're playing with him. And so how, how does that happen? <laughs> I, I think it can only happen in that situation where it, it's not even a seed planted in your head that you're trying to get in the band, because I right. certainly wasn't. I, I was a fan of his since my teens, since the Blow by Blow record was on the radio. And man, I mean, compared to everything else on the radio, that just stood out to have an instrumental record that got that popular. In fact, it was the biggest selling record instrumental record for like 30 years right. until Kenny G <laughs> became the thing, which we'll just leave that there. Um, yeah. And, and I, I became obsessed with his music. In fact, Steve Lynch during our class at GIT 
79, we were supposed to transcribe a song and rehearse it with a band and play it. And he did Cause We Ended As Lovers. And I was very familiar with all the music, but to see it in my face played well, uh, it just planted a seed where I became obsessed and I learned every single song and solo on Blow By Blow and Wired Records. And then I started on there and back and I go, oh, God, I know how much time it's going to take to get through this. <laughs> I, I think I was going for the final piece. And um, I think that's the name of the song. And it was just kind of a really long solo. And I go, OK, I've had enough. Two records is a lot. And <laughs> I got it down. So, so anyway, um, trying to meet him. Um, yeah, it, I, I, knew, I knew Terry Bozio and, okay. you know, Terry had played with him with Guitar Shop. And I just kind of hinted, man, I'd really like to meet that guy. And in on the bad tour, one of the keyboard players, Rory Kaplan, uh, knew that I was really into Jeff and said um, he had done some teching for Jeff and Jan Hammer back in the in the day. And he goes, oh, you're really into Jeff. I'll hook you guys up. Well, the bastard never did. So, you know, the bad tour is done a couple of years later, dangerous tour is happening. And I, that was my number one goal of the tour was to meet him and get an autograph. I knew we were going to England. He had to be on that island somewhere. Right. So every single show that we did, uh, I would ask the Sony reps that would be there after the shows. Does anybody know him? You know how to get in touch with him? And eventually somebody did it. Uh, one of the Sony reps invited him to a show, VIP ticket and VIP parking. And it was at Wembley Stadium and two opening acts went on and Michael canceled the show. And oh. right after that, Jeff drove up and they turned him away. And I was devastated. I'm like, oh, all the days to get sick, man. Yeah, bastard. So um, I called him up and said, you know, I don't know when or if they're going to make up the show, but can I meet you anyway? And he was really kind. I, I went to the studio he was recording his Rockabilly record at. Okay. They, yeah. And I, uh, you know, got my autograph. I, I was able to give him not only a copy of my first CD that had just come out, but I had also done a video for Flight of the Bumblebee where I was covered with all these bees and MTV in the UK <coughs> was playing that in their metal show. And they gave me a copy of it with an interview. And so I gave that to him. I was like, here's my offering, sir. <laughs> Never expected to hear from him again. And a couple months later, he called up and said, I finally had a chance listen to your record properly and let's record one together. And, uh, you know, it really took me by surprise. Cool. So good. And in true so Beck good. form, I, five years went by before anything happened. And I thought he was kind of over the idea by that time. And I, I would see him on the road. He toured with Santana and did another tour. And every time I saw him, he'd say, we're, we're going to do this thing. And I think, yeah, I, I know how it is to be inspired in the moment. And then you're over here right. the next day. But five years later, he called me up and said, we got this tour of Italy. Come on. And, and I mean, he just had faith. At that point, there was another tour, the history tour. And I had given him another CD that I had done that was just finished. And I guess that gave him the confidence to say, yeah, let's do this. But still, we had never played together. And I thought, man, that's that's a lot of faith. <laughs> and he's he's the kind of guy that jump and the net will appear. Right. And, and so I... I actually booked myself an audition in that I was, was flying to Italy to do a session and I booked time to go to his place and I learned the guitar shop record and just played it in his presence to make sure he wasn't nuts. <laughs> and and uh, we ended up 
touring and recording for three years. So, so I mean, these sorts of experiences that you're talking about are incredible, one-of-a-kind experiences. And when you think back, you mentioned your Hollywood days playing in five bands and doing whatever. Did you even yep. entertain for a second that any of this stuff would happen? Was that, was that something you were working towards and hoping something great would happen? Or did you just think, I'm just going to do what I do and see what happens? No, I always had my eye on the ethereal fame button. Okay. And in fact, I remember one time when I was at guitar school, Joe DiOrio uh, said in the beginning of school, he goes, okay, who here wants to get rich and famous? And I was the only one that raised my hand. And I'm looking around, like, feeling like an idiot. Like, is that not a cool goal? What the hell? You know? And, and so I just... I just kind of had this thing in my mind. It, it wasn't anything specific, right. but I wanted music to be my life and I wanted to play for a lot of people. And in fact, when I was playing all those Jeff Beck solos, I had an, an amp that was so noisy in my bedroom that, you know, I'd close my eyes and pr pretend that that sound was the crowd just going, ah! <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh my so God. That, that vision great. was there. It's so, so <laughs> great. Oh my God. It was uh, a Heath kit. <laughs> a Heath kit. Put it put together yourself, amp. Oh, that's wow. Uh, so impressive. Uh, so again, thinking back in the day, one last question there. How much did you get of, well, you're pretty good for a girl versus you're just a good musician? <laughs> and do you still get that now? Or is that sort of gone? Is your reputation sort of enough that people don't give you that shit anymore? Yeah, I, I don't hear much of it, but I I certainly did right. back in the day. I mean, gosh, when I, when I was with Michael Jackson in 1987, it it was really unusual. Uh, Prince had, had already had Wendy and Lisa in the band, and I I go okay, and then you know MTV Billy Idol had a, a female keyboard player in the band, and I thought okay, the revolution is happening. It's going to balance out, and it's like 20 years go by and nothing, no change at all, and all of a sudden, boom. Right. Everybody's got high-speed internet now, and I, I tell people there's not a week that goes by that I don't get turned on to some seven-year-old in Indonesia that can kick my ass. Right, right. You know, it's, it's just a whole other world now. Right. So, but but um, I don't think it'll ever go away where it's categorized as a female guitar player. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. right. I, mean, I, mean, I heard something yesterday that was great. Go, no, um, go ahead, go ahead, and then I'll make my comment. Gretchen Mann is in a Zeppelin tribute band that's often billed as an all-female Zeppelin tribute band. And you never hear an all-male Zeppelin tribute band or Molly Crew tribute band. Right. It's, so it's it's a long way from being 50-50 balanced. But having said that, there are more and more women getting into music and guitar. And in fact, the, the what's it called? The School, School of Rock has more women signed up. Right. You know, right. whether they will uh, take that to any big level or not, you never know. Right. So the, the comment that I wanted to make is so certainly with the Internet, you see more and more women. Um, and then Ibanez famously now has women in Dorsey's for their guitars with uh, Yvette Young and and yes. Nita Strauss and stuff. So you start to see those changes, but I definitely like in my little music scene here in Pittsburgh, sometimes you hear the occasional derogatory remark when there's a, you know, a, a female coming through or, or 
uh, female in the band, um, which is just, again, punk is, is inclusive, generally speaking. So it's just sort of weird to hear that sort of comment, especially now. But I'm, I'm glad that that you don't hear it so much. And, and, you know, I guess that's some progress from over the last 30 years. Well, you know, I, I think somebody like I, I think my favorite female guitar player now is uh, Larry Basilio. And that girl can take anybody down. I mean, she's so musical and so technically proficient and has the all the groceries, they say, you know, and it's it's going to take somebody like, you know, who who would get out there and revolutionize guitar world? Well, there was Hendrix, there was this, that, and then Van Halen comes along and it, everybody turns their head and goes, OK, we're over there now. Right. So right. one of these people might be leading the evolution as we say right on okay then uh, one last thing here uh be before i let you go so the guitar cloud symposium you're still doing that every month this is something that that people can sign up for and participate in and um how do how do people know like what the next program is going to be guitarcloudsymposium.com and honestly your timing is interesting because i just had a meeting with the marketing company today and I've been busting my ass trying to do one every month and I think it's going to be less, okay. less time, maybe four to six a year now, but um, they, they can always find information there. And I'm always putting stuff on my Facebook page about it. Okay. So hopefully this will, this bitch will grow. Right on. Because <laughs> honestly, you you know, the, the whole thing is don't quit your day job. It's guitar clouds. Museum, uh, doing uh, instructionals for true fire dot com playing my solo show i have a cover band i tour i do tribute bands it's like all of us musicians pretty much unless you're in the top one percent that can make a living on your band right. consistently putting out right. hits right. um you got to do it all right and and you're 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 doing all of that i and i get one last comment here i remember again back in the late 80s and and seeing you play for the first time and just thinking there is no way that I will ever be that good, right? And but now you know I could go to one of these things and just take lessons from you, which you know it's just it's crazy to think about after you know forty years of 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 this and and saying oh I'm just going to take lessons from Jennifer Batten now and I'll be a lot better. Oh yeah, the internet connects us to everybody, right. and I've, I've got some amazing players. I got Andy McKee coming up, and Jeff Paris, who's written songs for had 120 songs placed you know it's how hard is it to jump on zoom for an hour right. for somebody <laughs> you know I mean, it's, it's a little more of a challenge now that things are opening up from covid but um i, I, I think it's a wonderful thing yeah right right on well thank you so much for uh spending some time with us and and telling us some some cool stories i will drop all of the links into the podcast description thanks to everyone who's listening and supporting the podcast and um i wish you uh, a, a good day and a good week and and the next uh guitar cloud symposium jennifer thanks so much cool thanks so much for having me i appreciate it right.